Welcome into another episode of Real Pod Wednesdays. Dan Hope joined, as always, by Colin Haas Hill on uh, what's certainly an eventful week in America. I have no doubt it, between the time we're recording on Tuesday afternoon and by the time you're listening on Wednesday morning, that a lot will have happened in the news cycle in our country. But hopefully, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, you're looking for a break from all that and just want to hear us talk about football because that is what we're going to talk about today. And we got a lot to talk about. The glorious, you know, the gloriousness of our job is we get to predict what happens on Saturday night, which means Ohio State plays Rutgers, and we are just, I mean, I, I don't know, I'm flummoxed by that game. I can't really figure that one out. Yeah, no, I, my, 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 I feel pr- a little bit more confident in the projections on who's going to win that game than I do on who's going to win uh, the presidential election. But I do know that Ohio State got a 38-25 to win at Penn State on Saturday. And again, I, that was that was pretty close to what we were expecting. I think I predicted thirty-eight twenty-four. I believe the staff prediction was something like forty-one twenty-four. So I think that's about what we were expecting. We thought Ohio State would be a couple scores better than Penn State. In all honesty, with some of the stuff that happens in the game, I think Ohio State really could have won by more. But nonetheless, in what's probably the toughest game of a regular season for the Buckeyes. To me, a 13-point win, you got to be pretty happy with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I tweeted this out during the game, and, and, like, it just felt that way the whole way. Like, it just felt like an ass-kicking that was exactly that everywhere but the scoreboard. You know, 13-point win is, is nothing to laugh at, of course, especially when you're talking about Penn State, which, you know, for its flaws, you know, that's still one of the best teams in the Big Ten outside of Ohio State. Um, and, and I think that, you know, we saw a lot of I, – I just think we saw a lot, of, a lot of good things on a team that, you know, you come away from that game thinking this, this team is a legit championship contender. Like I, I was going into that game thinking, you know, we learned a decent amount about the Buckeyes in week one. But, you know, when you're, when you're going out on your first road trip to, to Penn State, I think that there are a lot of guys put in big-time positions for the first time. And – you know, I think you saw a lot of them step up, but it's just, you know, I don't know how many times we're going to do this show where we don't start with Justin Fields <laughs> because like this man, every time he touches the ball, something good happens for Ohio State. It really is incredible the way he's playing right now. Absolutely. I mean, he's, he's been unbelievable. To, the way he played on Saturday night, uh, 28 of 34, I believe it was something like 314 passing yards and four touchdowns, no interceptions. I mean, an amazing stat, Ohio State had this stat on Monday, that he has had as many incompletions this year as he has had touchdowns accounted for. Six passing touchdowns, one rushing touchdowns. And, you know, I, I, I feel like I got to admit I was wrong already here because I was saying a couple weeks ago, I really wasn't sure if Justin Fields could close the gap in the Heisman race. And I think he already has. I think the way he's played, obviously the unfortunate situation with, with Trevor Lawrence at Clemson and you know, you hate to see that under any circumstances to have anybody uh, getting COVID-19. So I think that's really unfortunate. But I do think there is a practical aspect of it that because now Trevor Lawrence doesn't have those two games, if they ultimately end up playing the same number of games and, and Justin Fields ends up continuing to play this way, I think now the path is right there for Justin Fields to emerge as the favorite in the Heisman Trophy race. And that's because he's played absolutely spectacularly in the first two weeks of the season. Yeah, it really is thrilling to watch him. Um, I think that, 
know, I, I just don't think we have to have a conversation anymore about, you know, is he the most talented quarterback to play at Ohio State? Like, if, if you're on the side that he's not, then, like, I don't really want to hear your opinion because you're wrong. Uh, if you have – I think that, you know, he can make his case for being the best quarterback in college football right now and being the greatest quarterback in Ohio State history, which to me is a little bit more than – a little bit different than, than most talented because I think that it takes into account – all your personal and, and team accomplishments while, while you're in school. And I think, you know, the way he's playing, yeah, he's right there in the high spin race. I mean, it's been two games. It feels a little premature, but I mean, look at this Ohio state schedule coming up. It's not exactly murderer's row for the rest of the regular season. I mean, the best two teams you're going to face are a Michigan team that just lost to Michigan state and then Indiana, which again is Indiana. Um, that's not exactly going to make me think that the Buckeyes are going to get upset either of those games. Um, I think that I think that the the way Justin Fields played is is a little bit like how a lot of people wanted to see him play in Week One, which is he ran the ball less, he threw the ball more down the field. We saw him connect with Chris Olave for for a couple of touchdowns. Chris Olave again, just sort of like Justin Fields. I, I didn't necessarily know exactly what the next step was going to be in his development. He just looks better. <laughs> like I don't even know how to put it. It's just like the the movements he makes, the catches he makes. It's just like they're they're more flawless, and he was pretty flawless last year. I mean, this passing game is just incredible. I, I like you. You look at what LSU did last year with Joe Burrow. Like this has the potential. It's been two games. This is the to, to the potential to be right there around that kind of level. Yeah, I mean, I think that trio of Justin Fields, Chris Olave, and Garrett Wilson has just been absolutely spectacular. You know, and you're talking about a guy. I mean, Justin Fields. You're talking about a top two pick in next year's NFL draft. Chris Olave, the way he's playing right now, he's putting himself to be a first-round pick in next year's yep. NFL draft. Garrett Wilson, he's going to be a first-round pick in the 2022 NFL draft. That's the kind of talent you've got on this offense right now. And, you know, first thing I'd say goes going back to what you were saying before about, you know, the most talented quarterback at Ohio State. I mean, there's no question. And I'd say this, enjoy it, Ohio State fans. Enjoy it because this guy is special. I mean, they're, they're recruiting great quarterbacks. I think, you know, the guys they're bringing in have the potential to be great too. But this guy is special. This guy, A guy like Justin Fields just doesn't come around very often. So enjoy it and enjoy it because the way he's playing right now is really, really special. And the way those receivers are playing right now is really, really special. And I, I wrote it in a piece this weekend. I, I think if you were looking right now, Ohio State's got a lot of, great players on its team but I think you could make the case that those three are the three best players on the team right now the way that those two receivers are playing yeah I I think you can absolutely make that case and and to me like a lot of that you know I I knew that those three were going to be really good a lot of that to me is Garrett Wilson and stuff that he's taken because he went from someone who I think last year you saw the flashes of greatness and he knew that he had a chance to be really special but, you know, they talked often during the season about, you know, how he needed to get better in pra- with practice habits, how he needed to get more consistent. And I think we're just seeing a really consistent player this year. I mean, I'll be honest, like on that first play that they gave the handoff to him coming across the line of scrimmage, I just didn't necessarily think that he had that in him. Um, I knew that he was fast. I knew that, you know, I, don't, I, knew, that, I knew that he could make some game-breaking plays. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had him back there as, as the punt returner. But, you know, I, I also thought that, you know, maybe he was a little bit, Know, more of a downfield threat rather than a guy who can run the ball essentially. But you know, he's shown some versatility with this game. And I think that, you know, the the ability to move him all over the field, the ability to target Chris Olave down the field, 
the the multiple tight end looks that they that they've you know implemented and continued to implement after last year. And then you get you got guys like Jameson Williams, Jackson Smith, and Jigba thrown in there a little bit, but like that is that is more than enough weapons to to operate with 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 Justin Fields. And it just feels like even with those guys, like we're really talking about Justin Fields, Garrett Wilson, Chris Olave as the main three guys. Everybody else is sort of just complementary pieces. Like teams defenses thus far through two weeks don't really know how to handle them. And and I think that, you know, at some point we're gonna see teams overcompensate a little bit on Garrett Wilson, Chris Olave. I think that's probably where we're gonna see a little bit more of the running game break out. And I also think, you know, that's when you get Jameson Williams more involved. You see maybe a little bit more tight end action. So this offense is just so multifaceted. I just think that this offense is gonna be the best in the country. And and you know, I thought it had really high potential. To me, this is it. This is it living up to its potential. This is us seeing exactly what we thought it could be if everything clicked. And, yeah, think, and timeout, I'll say this too. I don't even think the running game is that great yet. I think it's a good running game, but to be the best offense in the country, as we've sort of talked about for a while, like you don't necessarily need J.K. Dobbins. Like you just need a good, serviceable running game. And I think we saw the running game take a good step forward from week one to week two because yeah, that was one of the big points of angst. Kind of week one, I think, you know, week two, I think particularly Master Teague, we saw him, you know, run the ball better. I think he was more decisive. Uh, I, I thought he looked good. You know, I think Trey Sermon, we're still kind of waiting to see, you know, more out of Trey Sermon. I, I think he was still just okay against Penn State. But, you know, I thought the offensive line, I thought they took a big step forward too. I thought week one, I thought, you know, as, as much as we had hyped them, I thought they were a little bit underwhelming. I thought at Penn State, I thought they were excellent. Uh, I thought they did a great job, you know, open holes in the run game. Uh, you know, there were, you know, there were a couple sacks that were given up, but even those, I don't think those were necessarily missed assignments by the offensive linemen. I think they were more just the way that the way the plays were designed. I think, I think one, I think Master Teague was supposed to block somebody and he didn't. And I think the other one, Ryan Day, even said he took the blame on it. You know, where uh, Brandon Smith, the linebacker for Penn State. Uh, he really clobbered Justin Fields, but if you watch that play, I don't think it was really on any of the offensive linemen. I think uh, they, I think they had Sermon out, like lined up as a receiver. They didn't have anyone back there to protect, and they just didn't have anybody in position to pick up that blitzer. So I thought, all in all, I thought the offensive line played excellent, and I thought we started to see that kind of group that could be the best offensive line of the country, as we had talked about. How good does the defense in your mind have to be for this team to win a national championship? Because, like, I, I, I really – like, I, I think the defense has to be, like, good. It has to be decent. It has to be solid. Um, I do think if there are holes on this defense that pop up, I think this offense is so good that, you know, th- this, is a, this is an offense that even if the defense – even if the defense is a terrible game, I think this offense can, can win games single-handedly. Like, that's how good I think this is. I think this is probably the best offense – that I've I've seen since covering Ohio State, and and I know that's a high bar, but um, that's like what four years of really good offenses seeing seeing at Ohio State. But I think that I think that's where that's where I am with these guys right now. Even if we have our questions about how this running game is going to progress as the year goes on. Well, I think this is a way I look at it in terms of your question is. I think if, if we expect that the two games of a year that are ultimately going to decide this season are going to be games between Ohio State, Clemson, and Alabama, I think mm-hmm. both those games are going to be shootouts because I think all of those teams, the offenses are ahead of the defenses. And I, I, I think they all have offenses that nobody in the country is really just going to be able to stop. And, and, I, and so I think all of those games are going to be 
high scoring back and forth kind of games. And, 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 you know, it, it's just going to come down to who, who can make more plays. And I think, you know, I think the good thing for Ohio state is, you know, you look at, I think all three of those teams have tons of weapons on offense. They're all really talented, but I think Ohio state, you know, you see the makings of it, you know, they could be the best of the three. You know, I, I don't know if they're the best everywhere. Like I would take Travis Etienne or I'd take Najee Harris over Ohio state's running backs. But, you know, you just look at what Justin Fields is doing. You look at the offensive line. You look at these receivers. And like you mentioned, I, I, I think there's still a, so much untapped potential in this offense because it's been so heavily based around Fields, Olave, and Wilson so far. You know, we see it. You know, that opens up Jeremy Ruckert to score two touchdowns. We really haven't seen much yet from Jamison Williams or Jackson Smith and Jigba or Julian Fleming. So I think there's still a lot of untapped potential in this offense that if defenses start to find ways to cover what's working now, there's other things Ohio State can do to continue to be as explosive as it's been. So we want to flip to the defensive side of the ball. I, I think I got to transition. because You're talking about all of the untapped potential. I think some of these front seven guys are tapping into potential that nobody really realized that they had. Um, and, and I wrote about this after the game because this is sort of, this is the way I look about this uh, at this front seven is they won the game on defense because of Jonathan Cooper, Haskell Garrett, Tommy Togiai, Pete Warner, and Tuff Borland. And at least in the past two years, you've seen all five of those guys get completely overlooked and the fans um, and, and us, like we have talked about other guys instead of them in general, like, Haskell Garrett, we weren't excited for Haskell Garrett even before he got shot. We were excited for Teron Benson. Uh, Tommy Togia, you know, we were we, he's the one guy who doesn't necessarily fit that mold. But even last year, he was the third string nose tackle. Like Jonathan Cooper, you know, I was, I, I, I was on the train earlier in the year that I, think, uh, that I thought that, you know, he could have a fifth-year breakout. But, like, he looked, he looked better than I could have imagined. And, 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 you know, we were talking about Zach Harrison and, and – Tyreek Smith is the guy who's going to be the breakout, not not Jonathan Cooper as the best defensive end. Like Pete Warner, we spent half the year last year talking about Brendan White and why he isn't playing over Pete Warner. Like Pete Warner is like a potential first or second round pick now. Uh, Tough Borland, I mean, what are we? What do I need to say? Like, like Tough Borland has probably received more criticism in the last five years than than any other Ohio State player by a magnitude of five. Like the, the man just JT, the man Barrett, just JT Barrett might have something to say. About he's, that. he's, he's there. He's there. But I mean, tough Borland, the few people say positive things about him compared to, compared to, you know, the negatives and, you know, those five players played outstanding against Penn state, which as a really good, you know, it has a dangerous offense. Um, it, it's no, it's no Clemson. It's no Alabama. Don't get me twisted, but you know, Penn state, if, if you are not sound up front, Penn state can run on you. I mean, we saw Sean Clifford pick up 100 yards the week prior, and he had five rushing yards on 18 rushes against Ohio State. I mean, that is all credit to these guys up front. Yeah, I mean, I I was high on Tommy Togiai entering the season. I was, I think that was really well documented on this show. I would have never guessed that he would have three sacks against Penn State. No, I just, would, I just wouldn't have. I, I, I just wouldn't have. But that's a credit to him. I mean, he looked phenomenal against Penn State. Jonathan Cooper looked phenomenal. I mean, I thought. You know, we've, we've seen Coop play a lot of football at Ohio State, and I thought that was by far the best we've seen Coop look in his Ohio State career. 
Well, I think Jonathan Cooper, like, I, you know, Tommy Togia had the three sacks. He was defensive player of the game for Ohio State. I, and I, you know, three sacks for a nose tackle is absurd. I get it. Um, Jonathan Cooper and Haskell Garrett combined for one sack. They each had half a sack. Like, I think those guys were equally as disruptive inside. Um, I know Haskell Garrett, like, on one of the very first drives, he forced, you know, Sean Clifford to scramble into a sack. Uh, you, you saw Jonathan Cooper just make play after play after play and just get penetration um, at, at an unreal rate. And, you know, I'll be honest, like, I never really saw this from, from these guys up front. I, 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 thought that the, I thought this defensive line had a chance to be solid, had a chance to be good. But I didn't really expect that I would be saying that they're going to go and beat one of the best teams in the Big Ten because of Haskell Garrett and Jonathan Cooper. Like, to me, that's, that's sort of shocking. Um, and it's also, you know, it makes you think, like, like we can't we, – we shouldn't always just, like, overlook these older guys who haven't really produced it at the level they should, or at least, you know, people think that they should, uh, and just to look at, you know, the young, shiny guy. Um, and it makes sense why everybody does that because, you know, sometimes that young, shiny guy is – Marshawn Lattimore, Blake Hooker. Um, but, you know, I think that this front seven is, is going to be the thing that powers this Ohio State defense, at least in the regular season, at least early in the regular season. And, you know, they're going to be just fine because of it if Saturday was any indication. And, I mean, we see this every year. I mean, we see it with Devon Hamilton and Damon Arnett and Terry McLaurin. We see it every year that these guys who have been just okay players – that people overlook, that people are talking about the five-star freshmen coming in behind them, you know, and then they just, they just put it all together at the end of their careers and they have these big breakout years. And I think I mean, that's what we're seeing so far from guys like Jonathan Cooper and Haskell Garrett, that we're seeing guys who are finally putting it all together and really starting to emerge as the kind of players that, you know, we've been waiting to see them become for years. And I think, you know, that's huge for a defensive line that we talked about it going into this year, they needed several guys to step up. And, and that's what we saw on Saturday. And I, I also want to know, like, does, during Penn State week, do the defensive ends just practice tackling the quarterback and running back simultaneously? Because the fact that we've seen Joey Bosa, Sam Hubbard, and Zach Harrison all make basically that same play against Penn State in, like, a six-year span is just unbelievable to me. It's a heck of a trio, too. Yeah, the three names that you said. I mean, those are three guys who are going to be making what nine figures in the NFL combined easily. <laughs> yeah, one of them is already pretty close to doing it himself, or he, he might already be there. So, yeah, they're they're making a lot of money. There's no doubt about that. What's what's your level of confidence that what we saw in the front seven was more than just you know they they can do that against more than just Penn State because while Penn State I think has a as a solid offense. It has a good offense. It's an offense that, if you're unprepared, it, it can hurt you. Like, it isn't Clemson. Um, they're going to face, like, if, if you're talking about those last two games, they'll face better running games. Um, do you think that, you know, from what you saw and what we have seen in the first two weeks, that that's going to translate? Yeah, I thought it was promising, but I think it's one game. Like, I think I, – I do think we need to see more of it. And it's hard because, I mean, we do – uh, there's a lot of games here coming up, but it's going to be like, okay, how much do we read into this because of a level of competition? But I think nonetheless, if we can see these guys continue to sustain that play, to continue to play at that high level, then I'd go into that end of the season stretch with confidence that, you know, these guys really have taken a step forward and, and they're ready to make plays. I, I don't know that I can just feel real confident that after one game, but 
you know, I, I think just what we've seen from guys like Garrett and Togiai, you know, they, they've really shown that they can be starting caliber players. And I think that was huge at a position like defensive tackle. And like, it also really stood out to me was seeing a guy like Baron Browning play in coverage, a lot of a game against Penn state and look good doing it because I didn't know, I didn't know if he could do that. So to see him, you know, swatting down a pass in the end zone against Pat Fryermuth and to, to be taken on those roles in coverage and, and play well in that role. We talked about it so much last week. Like it, were they going to have an answer for Pat Fryermuth? Were they going to have an answer for the quarterback run game? And they had an answer for both. So that was really encouraging to me to see that, you know, they made those major strides in those areas and they, they had a good plan in place for stopping those things we knew they were going to need to be able to stop. And so, you know, I, I think it's a great sign Am I, I, to say that I'm confident right now that, like, they can shut down Clemson's running game. I can't say that. But I, I do think it's a good uh, step in the right direction. Yeah, I think I, think I feel, you know, as, as the games pass, like, I, I want to see this kind of performance more regularly out of Cooper. But I will say this, like, Togiai and Haskell, it's two weeks in a row where they are just they, – they are penetrating at a, at, a, at a rate that most defensive tackles don't. And, you know – who else that you know we should give some credit to? Greg Madison. You know, we were yeah. talking about how we weren't exactly sure, you know, how he fits into this. Like, if we're looking at what they do against the run, what they do in the front seven, a lot of that's Greg Madison. And and you know, we I think we saw a really fundamentally time fundamentally sound, tough, good tackling team on Saturday. And that is a lot, in my opinion, to, uh, attributable to to what Greg Madison does as, as co DC. Yeah, absolutely. I think I wrote in my in our last call piece we're doing now on Saturday mornings, I said, this is the kind of game where Kerry Combs and Greg Madison, uh, these guys make over a million dollars. Larry Johnson's in that group too. And I said, this is the kind of game where they got to make their money. And I think especially with Greg Madison and Larry Johnson, I think uh, that's exactly what they did on Saturday. I think they had an excellent game plan uh, for stopping Penn State. And and I think, you know, their units really stepped up and, and played really well. So do we have to talk about like the one deficiency? Like, here's yeah. the thing, like they won by 13 points. And like I was mentioning this to you off air, I went on the morning juice in, in Columbus on 97-1. And the first question to me was, so Sean Wade on, on Saturday, you know, he, he had his, you know, he gave up a few passes. Like, what's your level of concern there? And then my, you know, my answer was just like, like, listen, the first question is about if is the potential first round cornerback going to be okay? Like this, this is where this team is. Like two weeks into the season, things are going really, really well. Yeah, I mean, and like I don't, I didn't want to harp on it too much this week because I feel like I already talked about it last week. But like, I do feel like I have to say, like, guys, if if you're one of those Ohio State fans right now who's just agonizing over every little thing that goes wrong, please try not to. This team is really, really good. Like they're they're really, really good. I I I I truly believe this team has as much ability as any team in the country to win the national championship. I think they're right there with Clemson and Alabama. I think they're a really, really good football team. And and I think we need to understand, I mean, I'm sure a lot of you watch Clemson play Boston College on Saturday. Clemson almost lost that game. So no team is going to look perfect in every area week in and week out. That team does not exist. So Ohio State's the way Ohio State's playing, Ohio State's playing good enough to win a national championship. And there's still a lot of time for them to continue to grow. So 
we're going to talk now about the big concern coming out of that game because that's our job. But I would like recommend as a fan, enjoy this, enjoy this because the team is really, really good. And, and to agonize so much over the things that don't go great, that you don't enjoy a 13 point win at Penn state, a team that has given Ohio state a lot of problems over the year. Don't do that. But anyway, end rant back to the point of the secondary. I mean, first of all, Sean Wade, I am not overly concerned about Sean Wade. I think you probably agree with me, Colin, that you're not overly concerned about Sean Wade because this is a guy we're talking about as a likely, you know, first round NFL draft pick. And I think it's important to remember that this was just his second game playing as an outside cornerback. The last two years, he's played a different position. So I think some growing pains should be expected there. I, I don't think he had a good game against Penn state for a guy as talented as he is. I also think he was going against a really good receiver in Jahan Dotson who made some really good plays. And I think he, I think he's going to learn from that. And I think there's going to be plenty of opportunities for him to learn from that. So with Sean Wade, I'm not really concerned about Sean Wade. I am a little concerned though, just about, the overall depth at cornerback, especially after we saw what happened to Cam Brown with, with him going down with a torn Achilles and unfortunately being out for the season. I do think there's a depth issue there at cornerback that uh, they are potentially in a dangerous spot. Now, if you lose another guy to injury, or you lose someone to a positive COVID-19 test, they could be relying on some really inexperienced players in that secondary. Yeah, I think the, the the Sean Wade question. Um, I'll say, like, I'm not I'm not worried about Sean Wade. Like, if you're worried about Sean Wade, I think that's a little strong. Um, like, do you think that after we what we saw on Saturday, like, do you think he's do you think he's Jeff Okuda? Because no. I think that I think that that's that's a reasonable thing. That's Correct. a reasonable thing to wonder. Um, because you know when you're going to go up against the receivers that Alabama and Clemson have, like, it's great to have a Jeff Okuda. And I'm not sure. Like when we came into the season, we were wondering if Sean Wade could be that guy. So like, I'm not concerned that Sean Wade is bad at quarterback. I am wondering, you know, how, how good is he going to be? Is he going to be that, that Jeff Okuda? I thought last year, Damon Arnett was maybe as good in games as Jeff Okuda was. Um, I'm not sure if he gave up Damon Arnett ever really gave up as many passes as, as Sean Wade did on Saturday. Um, I think it's fair to fair to wonder that. Uh, about about Sean I don't think that's unfair um and and I think he'll need to prove that going forward and that's the tough thing about the Big Ten schedule is you're not exactly going to face not exactly going to face some some quarterbacks with cannons on their arms and and great wide receivers every week so I mean Dotson might be the best receiver he faces until the college ball playoff yeah yeah that's that's very possible um which is you know that's unfortunate for us to, to get to, to, to get to see what Sean is, but probably not unfortunate for Ohio State because, like you said, the other part, you know, they do have some depth concerns right now. And, you know, it's one of those things where if you remember back in March when Ryan Day said, you know, they're, they're an injury away from a little bit of a crisis at running back. And then, you know, he didn't know it at the time, but Master Teague had torn his Achilles. I wouldn't say that they were a little at cornerback one injury away from a little bit of a crisis. I think they are now one injury away from a little bit of a crisis because they can, they can move forward with what they have. And what they have is Sean Wade and seven banks on the outside. 
Marcus Williamson at that slot corner safety spot, uh, Marcus Hooker at the deep safety, and then Josh Proctor, you know, playing at a little deep safety, a little cornerback, just sort of everywhere. And I think that that is good enough to put together a good secondary. If one of them were to get injured, to, to test positive for COVID-19, anything, like I, th- I do think they would be in some trouble now. I think, that, I think the issue is, yeah, they are now one injury away from, I might even drop a little bit, from a crisis. I think, I, think they're in, I think they'd be in trouble if they have an injury right now. Yeah, like I think like when you think about Sean Wade, like, yeah, it, it, does he, did he look against Penn State like the guy who people were talking about as a Jim Forbord winner? No, he didn't. And, and, and maybe he won't be that guy at outside cornerback. I think that's a very valid question. I don't think he's Jeff Okuda right now. But I also think about, man, it sure is a good thing for Ohio State that he came back. Because if not, they would be in a really dicey spot right now. In, in that secondary, you know, and we saw it. I mean, you know, you know, seven banks, I, you know, I, I, I feel like seven banks is very quickly becoming now the player that fans love to hate. Cause I've gotten a lot of Twitter mentions about him the last few days about people criticizing seven banks. And, you know, this is where I would say like, Hey, let's, let's pump the brakes a little bit here. Like it, it's been two games. I, I don't think he had a good game against Penn state, but I also uh, think, giving up on a guy because he had one bad game is, is a little ridiculous. So let, let's see how seven banks does the rest of the year. I think right now he's still, you know, he's their second best outside corner. So I think he's the guy that they've got to hope uh, continues to progress. And, you know, the same is true for all these defensive backs, you know, all the guys you mentioned, because those are their guys. I mean, they're just not, you know, they've got some young talent, but I just, you know, I think secondary is definitely one of those positions. Like if you, if you have to rely on freshmen, uh, that could be problematic, you know, and, and Ty- Tyree Johnson's a guy, I mean, if I'm just going to be frank, like this is a guy who's in his third year. He didn't play at all against Penn state. And even just hearing the comments from Ryan day and Kerry Combs, like you just don't get the impression that this is a guy they see is a star who's waiting for a chance to break out. You, you just get the impression that he's just still not quite living up to the hype. And maybe he'll prove me wrong. Maybe he'll make me look like an idiot if he gets a chance to play. But, but you just don't get the vibe right now that he's a guy that they have a ton of confidence in to step in there if something happens and they need him to start a game. Yeah, I mean, if there's ever a year for some Kerry Comas magic, Ohio State needs it right now. Um, and it's not like they need it this weekend. Like they don't need it. They don't need it to beat Rutgers, and they don't need it next weekend to beat Maryland. Like I'm not. I'm not crazy. They need um, it in two months. Yeah, they need it in two months. They need to spend the next two months developing these guys at a high level, making sure Sean Wade is that Jeff Okuda, making sure that Seven Banks is going to be a, a you know a consistent um, quarterback on the outside, making sure that Marcus Williamson doesn't make any mistakes back there, making sure that one of these younger guys, whether it's Tyreek Johnson, whether it's Ronnie Hickman, whether it's any of the freshmen, um, whether it's, you know, someone who we don't really think about, like what about Cam Martinez, someone like that who just sort of explodes out of nowhere um, and, and makes his way into the rotation. Like those are the kind of guys that Ohio State is going to need to rely on. And I don't think, like you hear coaches talk, and, and I think, Dan, you had asked this in, in the press conference today on Tuesday about, you know, what young guys – you know, need to be ready. And, you know, they gave, they gave sort of the boiler, boilerplate answer of, you know, they all, they all need to be ready because we're going to need them all. And like, 
sure, like, I guess maybe that could be true if the whole team gets injured. But more than likely, like, they're going to need one of those guys. They're going to need maybe two of those guys to really shine and really show that they can play right away. And I think that, you know, you know, I think that they have some talent in that room, but I'm not looking at that room and saying, oh, that guy is definitely Jet, the next Chef Okuda, and I think they can count on him right now. Like, I, I'm just not. And that's why I am a little bit concerned about just depth and, and what happens if something else goes wrong, which is like, so like right now, I think that they're going to be okay. If something so else talk, were to go, yeah. or if something else were to go wrong, I just, I just don't know. I would probably be a little bit concerned for Ohio State's secondary. And you talked about some of the offseason, like, you know, you had a few years ago, you had that recruiting class where you bring in Jeff Okuda and Sean Wade, two five-star guys. And they haven't, they haven't quite brought in those guys for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I think these guys are talented, but they're not necessarily guys who you can count on to come in and play a big role as a freshman. You know, I think yeah, they have those guys in the 21 class potentially, but, but not yet. Right. I think the guys they have now are more developmental guys who, who you know, we are, we were all, we're looking at all of those guys is okay. They're probably more likely to make a bigger impact and, you know, year two, year three, year four, than they are in year one. But, you know, I, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. You know, I think, you know, you might need, I think, I think you do need a couple of those young guys to, to show something and be ready to play. Because I do think you're, you're one injury or one positive test away from a crisis right now in the secondary. But I think, you know, you, you don't need all of them. You, you need a couple of them. You know, you know, we saw a guy like Lathan Ransom get in there at the end of a Penn State game and make a really nice tackle on the last play of a game. Like he's a guy, you know, he, he's a guy that, you know, he, he's actually playing a different role than I would have expected playing that slot corner spot. But, you know, he's, he's out there. They're putting him in the game. So, you know, that suggests that, you know, he's, he's doing well. And, you know, we, re- we haven't seen the other guys yet. But I, I would think this weekend against Rutgers, maybe we will get our opportunity to see Ryan Watts for the first time, to see Cam Martinez for the first time. So I think, you know, these next, you know, five games in particular, you know, you hope that three or four of these games are going to be – big wins for Ohio state. And you hope that in the second half, you're really going to be able to get these guys some extensive playing time. So you bet you can see whether you can count on them to play with the game on the line. If you need them. That yeah. I mean, that's going to be one of the number one things I'll be interested to see in the Rutgers Maryland games. Cause man, that list is pretty short. Yeah. Before we move on to, to the Rutgers game, which we're not going to spend a lot of time on, but uh, did want to bring up the kicking game as well. We actually got a question from that from Hovenot, I believe. And, you know, we saw that Ohio State missed two chip shot field goals against Penn State. Uh, Blake Hobbyell was battling a groin injury, and after he missed his field goal, uh, he went out of a game, and then Dominic DiMaggio, the walk-on, came in, and he made one field goal, and then he missed another one. And, I mean, you could tell just from Ryan Day's comments both after the game and on Tuesday that he, he was not very happy about that that they, they were not making those short field goals. So it seems to be something that at least he's a little bit concerned about. Does this really concern you at all? Or, or do you think it's one of those things that by the time Ohio state needs to, you know, is a game where they need to make big field goals, but it's going to work itself out. No, if Blake Hobbio truly is day to day. Then I think that they can make it through Rutgers and Maryland without needing a kicker. I think so too. <laughs> but, but if, you know, if it's something that lingers, then yeah, I think that that's definitely, definitely something that I concern myself about, but you know, more so than anything, I'll be honest. Like the most interesting kicker conversation to me is why Ryan day decided to kick that field goal uh, against Penn state when he got down to the three yard line 
at the end of the first quarter had a chance to go up 21 nothing with the best offense in the country and decided to kick it with a kicker who he knew had been complaining about a groin injury before the game. I just think that that was one of the weirder decisions that he's made since he's been at Ohio State. That's fair. That's fair. I don't know what I'd give him about a ton of thought. So you probably have I honestly I don't I have, because really I have anything to add. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> but I gave it a ton of thought in the moment because I always think that if you get inside the three yard line with the best offense in college football, you can should consider going for it, especially if you have a hurt kicker. And we've seen him do that. I mean, we saw him go for it I'm twice. Doing in that game. Fourth yeah. down in the fourth quarter of a drive in which he said he needed a drink after. Uh so I mean, he, he, he's been aggressive a lot in those situations. And, you know, I think if Blake Hobbyell misses times, they're, they're probably going to continue to be uh, aggressive in those situations, especially against teams like Rutgers and Maryland, who, which I think you can afford to be aggressive against. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it, it, I just thought it was an interesting decision because I do think of him as a really aggressive coach. And when he didn't do that, it made no sense. And then when it came out that the kicker had an injury, it made less sense, but they won by 13. And that's the kind of thing that, um, you know, in a closer game, I think it, I think could have mattered. And there was a moment there where I did wonder if, you know, that was going to be something that was going to come up at the end of the game. And that would have been a, a real mistake, but they live to tell the tale. Ohio state favored by 38 points against Rutgers. So we're not going to spend a lot of time breaking down Rutgers in detail because you know, game matchups and stuff like that just really aren't that important for us to spend a lot of time talking about. But, you know, let, let's give credit where due. This Rutgers team does look better than the Rutgers teams we've seen in recent years. Now, does that mean I think it's going to be a close game on Saturday? I don't. But I, I do think this Rutgers team that's coming in isn't the same Rutgers teams we saw of Chris Ash. I think Greg Schiano does have something cooking there. Uh, there's still an enormous gap between Ohio State and Rutgers. And as long as Ohio State comes out and plays up to its ability, it shouldn't be a close game. But I, I do think this is a better t- better team that at least has a chance of making some plays in this game. I, I, I don't know. You know I, wow, we've seen, that is such a high bar. <laughs> is it? I mean, wh- why, why is that such a high bar? No, I was I was kidding. I mean, I just think it's 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 funny hearing you say that because earlier I was just joking with with you guys about what Ryan Day said because he you know he said you know Rutgers maybe they'll make it a game in the fourth quarter. It's usually that's the kind of thing where they say you know maybe they'll maybe they'll win. And you know, like as as much as I like I I agree with you. This isn't the same Rutgers team. It's almost the same Rutgers team. I think Ohio State's going to steamroll them. Um, I would be blown away if this game's close at all in the second half. Um, I think the interesting thing to me is, you know, this is the beginning of the build. I wonder if there's ever going to be a day where it's an interesting fourth quarter with Ohio State and Rutgers. I just don't, I just don't really see that happening soon. I think it's a long time for Greg Shiana to, to get to that point. And, you know, if, if, if it's close in the second half on Saturday, I guess I, you can put me on the crying Jordan meme. I don't know, but that would be, that would be a shock to me. No, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's going to be close. And I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say, like, I think Rutgers has a chance of winning the game. I don't think Rutgers has a chance of winning the game. Yeah. But, like, I, you know, I mean, you've got to look at this. I mean, this is a series. I mean, we have seen in just about every game these teams have played that Ohio State has just done whatever it's wanted to do on both sides of the ball. So 
I guess what I, here's what I'm saying is I have a feeling that after Saturday's game, this is my honest opinion. I have a feeling that after Saturday's game, it won't be close, but it's going to be just close enough that Ohio State fans are not happy about the game. Do you know how many yards per carry Rutgers is averaging through two games? I know I, I know the, the starting running back, Isaiah Pacheco, had like a really bad yards per carry. Yeah, they're averaging 3.1. Um, I'm, I have no idea how they're going to move the ball against Ohio State. And I also think that given what we've seen out of Ohio State's offense, um, we're going to talk about the, uh, the spread. I don't know. I feel pretty confident in Ohio State covering this one. And hey, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe we get maybe we get uh, the last time I saw Brendan White in person, he was the Rose Bowl MVP. Maybe we get uh, you know that kind of game 2.0. But that would be a, that would be a shock. I'll be honest. I'm not touching the spread this week because last year I was super confident Ohio State was going to cover against Rutgers, <laughs> and they didn't because they just they just they just didn't play great. Like it was you know, they would have been rolling all season. And you know, I think Rutgers actually scored more points against Ohio State than any other Big Ten team last year, which is a hilarious stat. But it was, it was just one of those games, you know, Ohio State, uh, you know, I mean, they, they were clearly the better team. It was a clearly mismatched game, but they just didn't dominate as much as they could have. So it's like, you know, to me, it's like 38 points. That's just one of those spreads. Like, I just don't feel good betting it either way. Because, like, yeah, I mean – if Ohio State goes out and wins the game like 70 to 7, would I be shocked? No, I mean, not at all. But 38 points is a lot for me. Uh, I, I think I'd, I'd, I'd feel more confident in the over, I think. I, I don't know that I really like either of them, but the over under being 64 and a half points, I, I think I'd feel better about that because I think, I, I do think Ohio State will score a lot of points because I think it has a really good offense. And I think, you know, I think Rutgers might score. Uh, a couple times I'm going to go with Ohio State covering the spread and, and it being under so you so know. you think a lot for Ohio State and very little for Rutgers I think that as much as Rutgers is a better team I think that that only makes it easier to sell Ohio State on the fact that that they're going to actually get some competition this year and it's not going to be a rollover um, I think that a lot of these guys know Greg Schiano and they're they're going to get up for that game um you know, it's. I, I think it's going to be interesting, Dan. Who's the most interesting Rutgers-related person? Is it, you know, are you are on Saturday? Are you most interested to see Greg Shiano, what Greg Shiano does? Are you most interested to see what Brendan White does? Is there someone who I'm forgetting? You know, it, this is one of those things where 2020 has changed my answer because initially my answer would have been I would have been most interested to see how Greg Shiano was received in Ohio Stadium because his tenure at Ohio state did not end great. So that would have been my initial answer, but since there's not going to be fans in Ohio stadium, I'm going to go Brendan white because you know, Brendan white, I mean, he just had such a weird Ohio state career where, as you mentioned, he was a Rose bowl MVP defensive MVP in 2018. He really on a really bad defense. He was one of the breakout players. And then we just saw his role totally disappear last season. So I think he's a guy who's going to come into a game, this game with a chip on his shoulder. I think he's a guy who's going to want to make a big play in this game. And we'll see if he does, but you know, I don't think it's gonna make any difference on the outcome, but I, I, I have a feeling Brendan white is going to come into this game uh, fired up and, and really wanting to make a big play uh, as he returns for one more game of a shoe. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, that makes sense. I'll, I'll just be honest. Like I have, I don't know why this is, I mean, this is the weirdest thing in the world, but like for years, 
I've just been fascinated by how in the world someone's going to build Rutgers. Like I've just, I've just been so fascinated by how anyone can make this program competitive ever since they joined the big 10. I've been interested in that. Um, so I think just seeing year one, like what is the baseline here? Like, what are they dealing with? I know they, they landed like 784 transfers in the off season to, to get this thing jump started, um, and, and they're doing better on their recruiting trail. But I think that, you know, I just want to see like, what, what does Greg Schiano have initially and, and where do I, do I actually think that they can have some potential to build this or is he just going to be a little bit disappointed going to Rutgers in the big 10 instead of the big East? Yeah, I think over time that really is going to be fascinating because I agree. I think he's got a tough road in front of him, you know. But I think it's promise. I think it's promising that at least you're seeing some immediate signs. I think. I mean, but the hardest thing about building is, I mean, you, he's taken over a program where the bar was set so low, but to achieve some progress, that doesn't necessarily take much. But the question is, what's the ceiling? at Rutgers. I mean, what can you, what can you realistically do? I mean, can you, you know, realistically become a, a middle of the pack, a big 10 team? Maybe I still think there's, I mean, I still don't think they're there, but I, maybe, I think maybe can, can they ever get to the point where they're really going to be contending with the powers of a big 10. And I mean, it's kind of Ohio state and everybody else right now, but even like Penn state and Michigan, can they really get to that point? And there's so much, I mean, it all starts a recruiting trail, but there's so much you got to do uh, to get to that point. I, I think it's a long road ahead of them, but, but I think they've got the right guy. I think Greg Schiano is the right guy. I think he, he knows what it takes to have relative success at Rutgers. And so I, I think he's the right guy to, to build them into something, but I don't know exactly what something is. Yeah. I mean, I've always thought that, you know, if Rutgers can really, figure this thing out, you know, internally, because, you know, they've, they've been a program with plenty of internal strife um, within the athletic department. And if they can figure that out, if they can get better on the recruiting trail, like I, I could see like a D'Antonio-esque tenure for, for some coach. Like I, I can see them like even, you know, contending for a big 10 title once. <laughs> like, I don't think that they're going to be up there forever, but like, you know, there's enough talent in the region Um that I, I really do think that, that, you know, the right coach can make something happen, but. And that's where it all starts. You've got to, the guys like Tyler Friday, Javante Jean-Baptiste, those are the kind of guys you've got to start keeping some of those guys. you got to get. Yeah, Ohio State's, yeah, Ohio like, State's fifth both. best defensive end. <laughs> right, right. But like, that's the truth. Those are the kind yeah. of guys you've got to start, you know, the five-star guy is not going to go to Rutgers right now. You're, you're, that's right now. That's not realistic if you're Rutgers, but those kind of those four star guys in New Jersey, those are the kind of guys you've got to convince to, to play at Rutgers. If you're really going to make that next step and have a chance to build a contender. All right. Who is the guy on Ohio state that you're most interested in seeing play against Rutgers? And obviously it's not going to be a starter because who cares? Yeah, CJ Stroud, because I think we will see CJ Stroud see his first playing time. My prediction is we will see CJ Stroud be the second quarterback in the game because I think they're going to want to keep things as even as possible with Jack Miller. I think we'll see them both uh, in the second half of Saturday's game. But my feeling is they will put C.J. Stroud in first because Jack Miller was the one who got in against Nebraska. This has the potential to be one of the all-time great just blowout overreaction games because, I mean, Ohio State's going to steamroll this team. I, I don't think that anyone's going to deny that. But Ohio State could win 63 to nothing. 
and if CJ Stroud goes two for seven with two interceptions and Jack Miller throws a pick, like <laughs> I just don't even want to go to, to the internet message boards after that one, because this, uh, this has some great potential because like, this is going to be the first time we've ever seen any of those guys throw a pass. Um, I think that we're going to see that from both Jack Miller and CJ Stroud. And it's hard for my answer to be anything other than those two guys, because they're going to hand the keys to one of those two guys in all likelihood, unless Kyle, Kyle McCord can come in and, you know, do something crazy his freshman year. And Ryan, let them, let them make plays and don't apologize for it. If they're in the game, let them make plays, let them score. Don't apologize for it. Please don't have them hand the ball off to Xavier Johnson 25 times. I'm sure Xavier Johnson deserves some carries, but I need, I, you know, I need to overreact to three CJ Stroud throws. Just give me that. I could see us. I could see us getting a, a walk on touchdown on Saturday, whether it's Xavier Johnson or Chris Booker or Sam Wiglues is one of these guys. I hope it's Chris Booker for your sake. Get that article some some nice yeah, bump. That'd be fun. Yeah. Club football alum, Chris Booker. I think we'll see him get a little time at receiver on Saturday. Three things we think. It's time to time to transition to uh, America's favorite segment, most creatively named segment of the world, where we say three things that we've been thinking about. Dan I don't have a theme this week. Um, oh, no. I, I wonder if you do, but, but you are going to lead us off. Uh, I never have a theme. Uh, I'll, I'll start off by saying I don't know if there was a clear right or wrong answer on whether the Big Ten should have allowed Nebraska to play a non-conference game after the Wisconsin-Nebraska game was canceled last week. But I do think you're seeing it now, you know, especially with Wisconsin, again, having to cancel a game for the second week in a row we really see how the Big Ten boxed itself in with no flexibility here. And, you know, you're looking at a Wisconsin team now that, you know, if they have another game canceled, they're not going to be eligible to play in the Big Ten championship. I mean, they might be the second best team in the Big Ten, but they just might not get that chance because they're having these games canceled. So I think we're really seeing here how the conference has boxed itself in. And I think it's unfortunate for teams like Nebraska and Purdue that now – you know, just lose games with really no recourse to make them up because the Big Ten isn't allowing them to play non-conference games. And, and I get that, you know, but the Big Ten put these protocols in place. And, and so to have them play games against other conference teams on short notice that might not be using those same protocols, I get why you wouldn't allow that. But it, it's just tough it's a tough spot for these teams and it's, you know, it's a tough spot for Ohio state because even if Ohio state, you know, does the right things, you, you know, you could have it happen to you where your opponent has to cancel a game. So it's just a tough spot for everybody. And, and, you know, you know, it, it's, it's so easy to say, well, they should have started two weeks earlier in hindsight, there's reasons why that didn't happen. But, you know, if you're a team like Wisconsin right now, I'm sure you're thinking, man, if we could have, gotten this season going a few few weeks earlier we'd be in a better spot right now it's hard to deny that one it really is um you know it's one of those things that we knew at the time but um you know I think that it's it was reasonable to be optimistic about the the way that you know the testing is done and I'll say this too like you know the the plan that was put in place where it has like the color codes right the orange red system you know where if you have double red, AKA I believe it's 5% of your student athletes, football players who test positive and 7.5% of all team personnel test positive, then 
that you'll have to shut down for at least a week. And Wisconsin still hasn't hit that, even though it has 27 players within the program infected. And I remember at the time, you know, everybody was talking about how the Big Ten was set up to, to not everybody, but a certain sector of fans were talking about how, you know, the Big Ten set itself up to fail. But, you know, even still, Wisconsin with Barry Alvarez, Paul Chris, not exactly, you know, those are, those guys are pure football guys. We're willing to, to, you know, stop, stop their season for two games, even though they didn't hit that double red. So I actually don't think, you know, there's a lot of conversation at the beginning about, you know, are the thresholds too low? I mean, they're not, you have 27 people in the program who have tested positive and you're, and you're still actually eligible to play. Obviously they're not going to, Um, but I, I think, I don't think that, you know, I don't think that's any indictment on the Big Ten. I think it's worth at least bringing that back, point back up since, you know, that was a fairly prevalent point that, that people who are against the Big Ten's plan were mentioning. The other part of it, though, is uh, to those who are skeptical about whether the, the Big Ten's um, plan of testing daily would stop the spread, I think that I think that, 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 is, that was reasonable skepticism. And I was an optimist there. I, I really thought that, you know, if the, if the plan that the Big Ten was put in place um, was actually put in place and implemented to, to, a, to a good degree, then I thought that, you know, the intra-team spreading be, would be minimized. And, hey, like, it's only one team, so maybe that will be the case. But, you know, to have that happen so early in a season is obviously not a great sign. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no doubt about it. And uh, it's one of these things you just kind of – you kind of have to hold your breath here. Uh, every week and and hope for the best and you know we hope that you know Wisconsin get back to playing next week and there aren't you know more instances of this but I think you kind of always have to be on guard against it every single week my first thing I've been thinking about is like I don't know about you Dan but like this is just me like we're in week three of the season Ohio State's played two games like I'm just gonna treat Ohio State as a playoff lock like something horrible would have to happen to Ohio State for them not to make the playoff. Just the way that teams are going down throughout the country. It's not like you look around and there are nine teams that are undefeated. You're really looking at three teams that are essentially locks in my mind. That's Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State, and then you're just figuring out who's that fourth. I mean, the way that Ohio State has played, and listen, I could be wrong. Like I do think that they're going to run through the Big Ten pretty easily. And, and obviously, I don't know who they would play in that scenario in the Big Ten championship. Um, but like this is a this is a, this is a schedule where the toughest teams are Indiana and Michigan, and like I mentioned earlier, like those are not exactly the the, the most challenging teams that Ohio State will ever have to face. Um, I thought that Michigan would probably be a bigger test for them than Penn State, and if uh, if that's true, uh, that would that would now be a little bit of a surprise to me, given the fact that they lost to Michigan State. I do not expect Penn State to lose to Michigan State. Um, so I think I think Ohio State, in my mind. I'm basically just going to treat them as a playoff lock. And even if something bad were to happen to them, like imagine if they lost. Um, just the way that things are shaking out right now, I know it's early. Things are going to happen. But since things are going to happen, since losses will happen, I don't know. I feel like even an Ohio State one-loss team, I'm certainly not ruling them out. I just, I just think that the Ohio State has put itself in such a great spot early on. And just to see the, the rest of college football teams uh, around them, like there's just such a clear top three right now. Yeah, a lock is way too strong for me, especially with what we were just talking about with, with the COVID situation. And, you know, nobody's immune to that. So a, a lock is still way too strong for That's me. Fair. But, That's fair. That's fair. But, you know, I, I get what you're saying. I mean, I mean, there's a reason why we keep talking about in January, in the playoff, Clemson, Alabama. There's really what we keep talking about because 
it is it is what I expect to happen. I expect Ohio State to make playoff. And there's a reason why the odds are overwhelmingly in favor of Ohio State winning the Big Ten and make a college ball playoff because it should. I mean, it should not lose a regular season. Do you know those offhand? Do you know what the odds are? For I don't know a playoff. Offhand? I did see earlier that Ohio State's odds of winning the Big Ten now, I believe, were up to minus 1,000. <laughs> That's you'd unbelievable. Have to, you'd have to bet $1,000 to win 100 on Ohio State winning the Big Ten. So I mean that's just crazy. Yeah, I mean I guess technically not a lock, but I guess Vegas is Vegas is right there with me. Like it's it's as close to a lock if, as you can get in an area you, where they're going to play. If you players. actually believe that another team is going to win the Big Ten, go bet on them because you can get value on <laughs> yes. any other team, but you're not getting value on Ohio State. Shout out to you if you really believe that too. <laughs> that's a that's an unbelievable thought. Bold bet. I'll say. I. You know, I ex- I expressed some disappointment with with Ryan Day apologizing for the touchdown because I just didn't think he needed to do that. So I like Ryan Day going out after the game and just calling it like he saw it with the end of half situation at Penn State that he thought it was completely mismanaged that he wasn't happy about it. You know, he didn't say anything inflammatory that would get himself fined, but I like the fact that he he didn't just not talk about. It. I like the fact that he came out and said he didn't understand it. I mean, even Tuesday, he said, I still don't understand it. He wanted to move on, which I think he should, because uh, I, I don't think there's reason to dwell on it anymore. But I, I like the fact that, you know, even after a win, he came out and, you know, questioned it and, and, and you know, showed a little bit of edge there, because I think, you know, he should. I mean, I think he should. I think if, you know, something like that, that was a, a questionable situation that, you know, it seemed very unlikely that, uh, you know, the, the clock, if it started on time, uh, would have left a time left on the clock for Penn State. I like the fact that he came out and said he didn't agree with it. I always love when coaches actually speak their mind because too. it doesn't it doesn't really happen all that often. It's good for our jobs. It's It makes it a lot easier to write. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it makes it a lot easier to write when coaches actually say interesting stuff. Yeah, and, uh, you know, didn't get him into trouble. So hopefully people speak their mind more often. And he's smart about it. You know, he's smart. He knows how to speak his mind without going full, you know, Lane Kiffin and and getting himself fined. Though Lane Kiffin will also be a thrill to cover. Oh, he he would Probably not. Yeah, I don't think Ohio State fans would like uh, having him as their coach. But he would be fun. But... All right. My second thing I've been thinking about is, you know, I was thinking, I I just, you know, I was thinking which round I was going to pick, but like, I think everybody in this round and on this offensive line goes third round or higher. Um, I think that this offensive line is, is so good that, you know, I think they're going to have multiple first round picks and everybody will go third round or higher. And I think that when we look back on it, we're going to be like, wow, all these dudes really played together. Um, Wyatt Davis, potential first rounder. Josh Myers, first or second rounder, probably second. Um, Harry Miller, I just like, I think that I, I think his first game was okay. I think that he had some real struggles in that game. Not his second game, you know, Kevin Kevin Wilson mentioned it on Tuesday. That his second game was really good. Um, Nick Petit Frere. Nick Petit Frere looks unbelievable so far. And so does Thayer Munford. And, you know, Thayer Munford's maybe, if I, if I had talked about that, third round cutoff you know he was the one guy who I say like should I say fourth round fifth round I don't know and for him it's just solely for injury concerns just because I don't know 
how much an NFL team would be willing to, to, to how early they would be willing to pick someone with, with his injury background. But I think right now this offensive line, you know, in, in week one, I thought it was fine. I thought it was solid. I didn't actually think it was on track uh, in the way that I thought it would be to, you know, come out right out of the gates as the best offensive line in the country. I think we saw it get closer to that in week two. And I just think when, when we're projecting out these guys long-term, like these guys are, these guys are, these guys are as talented as can be. You are going very bold with your things you think today. And I, I know I respect it. I am, but like, I, I don't know how I'm supposed to project that Harry Miller, Wyatt Davis, Josh Myers, Nick Petit Frere and Thayer Munford aren't going to go high in the draft. I mean, I'll be honest. Like I, I was a little unsure on what the first two years of Nick Petit Frere were like, I wasn't exactly locked in that once he took over, it was going to be smooth sailing. Saturday was just the smoothest sailing I've ever seen. I mean, I didn't expect that out of him. I thought that he might have a hiccup or two. He was about as perfect as can be. And, and you know, if if he can do that against Penn State, shoot, he can do that about just uh, against just about anybody in my mind. He's been he's been very impressive. All right, I'll just I'll just make my last thing kind of an, a niche thing because it's something that I've noticed when rewatching the games. I'm gonna predict that Pete Warner will block a field goal this year because. I've now seen him three times in two games get a perfect jump over the line of scrimmage and get in the backfield and almost block a kick. So it's probably not something a lot of people are paying a lot of attention to, but it's just something I've noticed. But he's, he seems to be very good at timing up his jump over the line of scrimmage to get in the backfield. So I'm going to say that uh, he, he blocks a field goal this year. Who do you think has more field goal blocks in their career? Pete Warner or Paris Johnson or Dewan Jones? That's a good one. I, 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 seeing Paris Johnson block a field goal would be fun, too. It was fun to see him out there. Um, you know, somebody mentioned it in the press box. Like, I want to see Paris and DeWand out there together on the field goal block team. Like, I just want to see the Twin Towers there in the middle. That, 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 would be, that would be intimidating to me if I was a kicker having to kick over Paris Johnson and DeWand Jones. Yeah, it very much would be. Um, my last thing I've been thinking about um, – I guess I'm going very bold and very like pro Ohio state on this one, like in a way that I don't know that I have before on, on these three things that I think, but I'll just do it. Cause like, this is, you know, the second week in a row that I've sort of thought this is, you know, Jeremy Ruckert's going to go underdrafted. I don't know where he's going to get picked. I really don't. I think it's really hard to tell. Um, and I don't even like, I have no idea if he's going to leave after this year, next year. I really don't know with him. Um, you know, that's an interesting decision to make but I do feel pretty confident he's going to go underdrafted because I think when you play tight end at Ohio state, it's not like they're going to utilize you uh, like a 70 catch tight end. Um, I think Jeremy Rucker has the potential to be that kind of guy in the NFL. And not only that, I think Jeremy Rucker just developed as a blocker in a way that I never really thought that he would. I thought that he would probably be, you know, I'm sure I, I always thought that he would be a better blocker as he, as he, as he got older. I think he's a really good blocker now. I think he's a really good, well-rounded tight end who is also a guy who's only going to catch a maximum of four passes in an Ohio State football uniform a game. And I think that that'll change at the NFL level. Uh, I have no idea where he'll get picked, and maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe NFL teams will look at the way that he was used, look at his measurables, his athleticism, and think, like, if he were placed in a different offense, he could do something He could, he could do something different. But um, – but I, I really like what I've seen from him. And he's like, when we were talking earlier about, you know, the way this offense can evolve, like, I just think, I think getting him the ball more, 
more Jeremy Rucker gets involved in this offense, the better because he's a playmaker. I was, as you were talking about your offensive line, NFL drafters in my head, I'm, I'm going, okay, do I want to drop Pete Warner take, or do I want to talk about Jeremy Rucker? Because uh, I was thinking about bringing that up too. And I was, I was going to make one of the points that you made that if you watch Jeremy Rucker, Jeremy Rucker's a really good blocker. And, and I think, you know, because he's been hyped up as this receiving option, I think people think of, well, Luke Farrell's the blocker, Jeremy Ruckert's for receiver. Jeremy Ruckert's a really good blocker. Watch him. Like I saw, I don't remember who it was, but I saw someone like do a quote tweet the other day, or it might've been a Twitter mention or something that like one of the announcers said that Jeremy Ruckert was a blocking tight end. And they used like a emoji or something to like critique it. It wasn't well, you. I saw it, it no, but I, I did tweet it and no, but I saw it from somebody else. Like, like I saw it from somebody else who was like questioning it. And well, I, I, I questioned it in that, like, I don't think of him as a black first tight end. I now think of him as like a, I just think of him as a tight end. Like to yeah, me, he's, well he's neither. I just think he's well-rounded. You're right. And, and I just think that that's different. And like, we spent a lot of the off season whenever we did talk about tight ends, talking about Luke Farrell being the guy who's, you know, the multifaceted tight end. You can do a little bit of everything. Jeremy Ruggert's the more receiving option. I just think Jeremy Ruggert's a more dynamic version of Luke Farrell, if that makes sense. Like, I think Luke Farrell's a very good tight end. Luke Farrell does his job every single time he's out there. I think Jeremy Ruggert now is, is about as good as a blocker as Luke Farrell and, and a really good downfield receiver. And, and he's an underutilized weapon. But also when you have Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave, you're going to live okay if he's underutilized. I think where my point difference differs from you slightly is I don't necessarily think he's going to get underdrafted. I think he might get drafted higher than people think he's going to get drafted because I think I think NFL teams will be able to recognize that potential. And my, my, my strong take is that I believe Jeremy Rucker will be more productive in the NFL than he's ever going to be at Ohio State because I think in an NFL offense that throws to a tight end more, I, I think he's going to have the potential to put up much bigger numbers than he's ever going to in Ohio State's offense. Well, I think anyone who doesn't believe that is a lunatic um, because he's that will be that's just a fact. I don't something will have gone wrong and he wouldn't and we would look back and think like maybe he wasn't the receiving option that we thought he was if that's not true. Just because the way the NFL tight end NFL tight ends get used is is a little bit you know different than the way that Jeremy Ruckert specifically gets used. Do you think like as we sit here today? I get this is an impossible question. I'm just going to ask it anyway. Do you think he goes to the NFL after this year? Or do you think he comes back? Yeah, that's it. Really, is an impossible question. Like, I don't know. Like, I think I think he could if he wanted to, but I, I'm not inside his head, and I don't think he's. You know, you have a guy like you know, you have guys like Justin Fields and and Chris Olave, I and mean, we already know what Sean Wade and Mike Davis are going to do, so it's not even worth discussing. But like a Chris Olave, to me, he's playing himself to where he he has to go next year. The way he's playing, he, he's playing himself to be a first round pick. There's not going to be any reason for him to come back. I think Jeremy Ruckert's a guy who could still kind of be on that fence. But at the same time, because of what we just talked about, I don't know if coming back another year after this year will necessarily bolster his draft stock just because I don't know that you're ever going to get a ton of targets in the Ohio State offense. So, I mean, I, I really have no idea. I, I'm not inside his head. I, I, think he, I think he's a guy that after this year will be able to go to the NFL if he wants to. and will get drafted for sure. I'll say from Ohio State's perspective, getting Jeremy Ruckert back for senior year 
like I it's so dumb to even talk about this right now it's, it's not even worth it but I'll just say it just because like who cares like if you're listening to this deep into Ohio State football podcast like you might as well think about the 2021 team having him back and and having Garrett Wilson and him be the top two options for and Jackson Smith and Jigba be like that trio of options for you know CJ Stroud or Jack Miller like that's a nice little trio and if he's gone Julian Fleming's gonna be pretty good too so. yeah yeah him too him too gosh they are going to – I don't know who's going to be the next quarterback, but you're right. That they're going to have they're going to have some options. Yeah. I mean, Jameson Williams, didn't mention him. Like, I mean, they've got they've got yeah. so many – But, yeah, but point being at tight end, I'm not exactly sure who the underclassmen are behind him. So, no, from Ohio I agree. State perspective, it's actually important to get him back. But from a Jeremy Reichert perspective, that guy's going to go pretty high. We only had a few questions, and I feel like we've really already answered all of them. Um, so, because <laughs> there was a question about – the kicking situation, kicking Cam Brown, we already answered that. We were asked about the quarterbacks. We were asked if the Bucks come out and dominate as they should. Do we see Hoke at quarterback, or will it be a Miller-Stroud split in the second half? I think we both agree. It's going to be Miller and Stroud. I think we both expect to see Stroud first. But I think uh, I think what they're going to do is whenever they put into backup quarterback, they are going to try to calculate, okay, how do we get both these guys equal playing time as possible? Do they keep Stroud in for two or three series to do the same with Miller? Do they alternate back and forth? I don't know how they're going to do that, but I do think they're going to try to get both of them the same amount of series as possible. And I don't yeah. know. If, I don't know if Gunnar Hoke will play. I think if, if it's a real blowout, I think they probably try to get him in for a series at the end, but I don't think they're going to be overly worried about whether they get Gunnar Hoke in the game. And I also think, you know, the way that Ryan Day is coached, he, he's someone who's kept Justin Fields in a little bit longer than I think some other people would. So there's actually probably going to be fewer opportunities for backup quarterbacks than you might imagine. That's just my guess. Um, the other thing is, yeah, you've heard a lot of Ohio State's coaches, you know, talk <clears throat> over the last um, few weeks about, you know, they don't have those Bowling Green games. They don't have the Buffalo game early early on where, like, you just get those kind of guys playing time. So you have to maximize whatever you get for your young guys. So, yeah, I think it's important to get Jack Miller, C.J. Stroud in. And Squirrel Master asked us about the passing game being so dominant with Olave and Wilson. And he asked, could this be – he said there hasn't really been a third receiver. He said, could this be because the third option has been a tight end, that being Jeremy Rucker. And he said – you know, is, you know, is, is Ruckert becoming a third option? Is there a gulf of development in the receiver room? Will the coaching staff use this week to get more passes toward Williams and the fresh four, he called them? Or do we see the growth of Ruckert as a legit passing threat continue? I think my take on it is, I mean, I think right now, like Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson are so good that like, yeah, that's, that's the reason why we haven't really seen a third target emerge it's just because those guys have been so good that like they just haven't needed to lean heavily on anyone else. Ruckert might be the third guy. You know, we haven't seen a lot of Jamison Williams yet. So my, my expectations have been tempered on him a bit, but you know, I still think he's a guy that's got big playability. I mean, I think that the amount that Jackson Smith and Jigba played uh, against Penn state suggests that he's a guy who, you know, could get more and more playing time. And I think in this game, you know, they're going to try to get, you know, I think certainly they're going to get all four freshmen in there. I think Cameron Babb's going to get in there. You know, I, I think they're going to try to get, you know, as many guys as they can in there and spread it around. So, you know, I think, you know, I, you know, I, I would think a game like Rutgers, you know, I think what we saw against Penn State and I think what we're going to see in big games 
is guys like Olave and Wilson just aren't going to come off the field. I would think in this game, you're going to see more rotation and getting guys like Julian Fleming, G Scott, getting those guys in there, getting them some reps, starting to see what they can do. Because certainly if we talk about depth, you know, the way I see it is I think if Olave and Wilson keep playing this well, then you don't really need some elite third option, but you do need to have depth because if something happens to one of those guys, you need to have other guys who can step up uh, and play in their place. A little bit of the answer to this question too is just how many, how often are they going double tight end looks? And they've been doing that a good amount of yep. time. So the more you do that, the less you need that third wide receiver. Um, and the more you can get Jeremy Reichert involved in the passing game. So I think that that's honestly part of it too. And it's just a matter of how often are they going to continue to do that? And I think they're going to continue to do that a good bit because um, one, they're important to the running game. And two, like we just said, like Jeremy Ruckert and Luke Barrow are both just well-rounded tight ends who are going to be really effective in this offense and, and they can get creative with them. So I think Jeremy Ruckert could, could be third on the team in catches. I'm not sure if I'm ready to predict that, but, but I certainly think that's possible. Well, that'll do it for this week's episode of Real Pod Wednesdays. Thanks, as always, for listening in. And we'll be back next week to uh, recap some Rutgers action and look ahead to some Maryland action. Thanks again for listening in, and we'll talk to you again next week.